It's my privilege to be offering the Dharma talk this morning. The topic I want to talk about today is starting over again and again and yet again. I recently watched a film that I'd seen before and which I'm sure many of you have seen, which is called Groundhog Day. And in this film, Bill Murray plays a weather forecaster who goes to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania with a television crew to televise the ceremony on February 2nd in which the groundhog, Punxsutawney Phil, is brought out of his lair to see if he can see his own shadow, which by folklore will determine how much longer the winter is going to last. According to legend, if he doesn't see his shadow, then winter will end soon, but if he does see it, winter will continue for another six weeks. The character played by Murray is a rather flippant, self-absorbed person. As a weatherman, he knows that he's pretty much on the bottom of the totem pole in the network news team. He's resentful that the only kind of special assignment he can get is following the fate of Punxsutawney Phil. So the ceremony with the groundhog plays out and the crew is ready to return home to Pittsburgh, which is their home base. But then things take a strange turn. A snowstorm forces them to spend the night in Punxsutawney. And when he, the weatherman, awakes the next morning, thinking that it's February 3rd, he discovers to his amazement that it's February 2nd again. The same song is playing on the radio that was there the morning before when he awoke there. Uh, the same person he saw on the staircase coming up as he's going down is there again with the same goofy look on his face. The same crowd as he looks out the window is gathering to await the same groundhog ceremony. He is in fact reliving every detail the same as he did the day of the day before. And as this story unfolds, the same thing occurs again and again. The same storm keeps preventing the TV crew from leaving and the next morning he wakes up to the same song saying it's February 2nd on the radio. He's caught in some kind of time warp reliving February 2nd again and again. At first he sees himself trapped and sees this inexplicable repetition as a curse. He remembers, he's fortunate that he remembers everything that has happened in all these February 2nds, repetitious seconds. And so as he anticipates events recurring, he decides to at least have a little fun with it and starts making fun of some of the people whose paths he crosses because he can anticipate exactly what they're going to say or what they're going to do and they have no idea how he knows this. And so he takes advantage of what he's learned in all these repetitions. He begins to get rather careless and carefree when he realizes that it doesn't really matter what he does because he's destined to wake up again the next morning anyway, so it doesn't matter. So he drives a car off a cliff, he jumps in front of a bus, he gets into a fight with a policeman, not really caring because he knows the next morning that same alarm will go off and the same song will be playing on the radio. So up to this point he continues to be pretty self-centered and narcissistic. But as this scene plays out again and again and again, some subtle changes start to occur in his character. He finds himself, almost in spite of himself, feeling real affection for some of the people in this town. He starts becoming more compassionate. He also finds himself falling in love with one of the crew members. And he uses the knowledge he's learned from her about herself and all the previous incarnations of this day to try to woo her. This doesn't work the way that he hoped it would. And in any case, he realizes that it doesn't matter because he's just going to have to live it over the next day anyway. 
So he stops trying to trick her and simply at one point declares his love for her and just tries, maybe for the first time, to be himself. And to his amazement, this allows him to escape the repetitious situation and he and she together wake up to the clock radio with the realization that finally it is now February 3rd. That there are no more repetitions. And with a somewhat Hollywood ending, they decide to stay in Punxsutawney and make a life there together. Now all in all, this is a very clever and entertaining story, good film. But it also is a story with a message. And in seeing it for the second or maybe it was the third time recently, I realized that the story in Groundhog Day is a kind of metaphor that illustrates for me what I think is one of the central teachings of Buddhism, as I understand it. And that is that we are not destined to repeat the past endlessly, but rather we have the opportunity and ability to start anew every day, indeed every moment. I have to admit that as a psychotherapist, I have found that this message cuts against much of what I was taught when I was first trained in psychoanalysis and depth psychology. Of course, Freud, the great pioneer who discovered psychoanalysis, believed that the past, especially the first three to five years of our lives, play a very strong role in determining who we will be as adults and how we will live out our lives. In fairness to him and to many who followed him, these early formative factors in our development weren't seen as preventing us from making changes in our lives and finding a way to adapt and live relatively healthy lives. But it was suggested that to achieve this one might need years of time-consuming and expensive psychoanalysis. And even then the change wasn't expected to be all that dramatic. Freud once described the goal of psychoanalysis as replacing neurotic suffering with normal everyday suffering. Uh, which isn't necessarily an un-Buddhist <laughs> thought. But I don't want to disparage Freud's work because he was a pioneer and obviously his contributions were tremendous in our understanding of the human psyche. Many who followed him over the years built on his work and expanded it and began to offer new maps of the human psyche that offered increasing hope for significant change in human behavior over the course of the life cycle. In the latter half of the 20th century, psychologists such as Eric Erickson, Viktor Frankl, Abraham Maslow, and Rollo May placed greater emphasis on the role of the human will and on our innate ability to make significant changes in our lives, even in our later years. And this is much more consonant with what I understand to be the teachings of Buddhism. The idea that Regardless of what has occurred in the past, regardless of what I have done or what has happened to me in the past, this is the first moment of the rest of my life, and the path of my life can change, is obviously a very hopeful and appealing message. But I think most of us are wise enough to know that it's not a simple thing. It's not as simple as saying, okay, whatever has happened before, I'm just going to wipe it out of my consciousness and move on as though it never happened. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that? But we can't do that. While our past does not have to be determinative in shaping our future, uh, nonetheless, it's a major part of who we, all, who we are. We all carry baggage from past experience, some of it good, some of it painful or destructive. And when we try to shut off past experiences and pretend that they didn't happen, we often find that this is a way, in my experience, of inviting disaster. And this is particularly true of traumatic experiences, both in childhood and in our adult lives. 
The old adage, forget and move on, doesn't work. We can't forget the hurts and the damages, the losses, and the painful experiences in our lives. And ironically and annoyingly, when we try to forget them by repressing them, these very repressed memories tend to become the thing that prevents us sometimes from being able to move on. As Jung, the Swiss psychoanalyst, once wisely said, if we don't allow these bad memories, if you will, to come in the front door of our awareness, they will sneak in through the back door or the window or jump out of a closet or cupboard when we least expect it. So what is needed is to have full awareness of the painful parts of our past and to come to terms with them so that they don't haunt us and they don't control our current behavior. Now, How do, how do we do that? And there's, there's no one simple answer to this because obviously many things are involved. Certainly our spiritual practice and especially the practice of meditation can help us to become more self-aware and to kind of step back, take a step away from our painful emotions and see them with more objectivity. But sometimes meditation is not enough. Some people have had very shattering traumatic experiences that leave deep scars that are difficult to heal. Those who've suffered from violence, from rape, from other forms of abuse. Those who have suffered from the horrors of war, those who have lost parents at an early age, or those who have suffered betrayal at the hands of those whom they trusted. Now these are just a few of the things that come back to haunt us and undermine our ability to trust that life can be better. And sometimes these memories and these events paralyze us when we would want to be able to move on but feel that we simply can't. Now fortunately there are things we can do that can help us to come to terms with these experiences and enable us to integrate them into who we are and move beyond them. Uh, psychotherapy and counseling with someone who is sensitive to our needs and knowledgeable about the effects of traumatic experiences can be helpful. That's not the only thing that can be helpful, but it can be helpful. It's only in recent years that we in the helping profession, uh, professions have begun to understand the importance of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder which is a common result, often crippling result, of traumatic experiences. We saw this, a lot of examples of this in this city after the events of 9-11, when so many people were traumatized by the terrible events of that day. And we see it now in the veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, people who have witnessed and sometimes perpetrated horrible things that have shaken them to the core. Of course, this is not new. PTSD has been with us forever, but it's only recently that psychotherapists and others in the helping professions have come to understand what it is and how it can manifest itself and how to help people come to terms with it. And we still have a lot to learn in this area. Far too often people who come to therapists such as myself have been too easily diagnosed as simply depressed or anxious or obsessive <coughs> without a full understanding of the fact that their depression or their anxiety might be a reaction to trauma that they experienced in the past, even in the recent past, but which they've repressed because it is so painful. And there's no question in my mind that people who suffer from PTSD need professional help. I'm also confident that with the proper help, most people can eventually come to terms with their painful trauma. 
They don't forget that trauma. It's always, I think, indelibly imprinted in our brains. You can't forget it. But they learn to integrate it in a way that makes it possible to go on into the future and regain some kind of trust or hope in life. And in working with people who suffer from PTSD, I've always been struck by how amazingly resilient the human psyche is. One of the most remarkable, inspiring stories in this respect was that of Viktor Frankl. Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist who spent more than two years in two Nazi concentration camps during World War II. And while he was there, his entire immediate family, including his parents and his wife, were exterminated by the Nazis. Only he and one of his sisters survived from a very large family. And yet after the war, Frankl went on to become one of the most influential existentialist psychiatrists of the 20th century. And he laid out his philosophy and experience most clearly in a little book I highly recommend called Man's Search for Meaning. Frankl felt that what made it possible for him to survive and to go on after his terrible losses and experiences was his belief that there is meaning to be found in all of life, even in the worst of experiences, and that our souls are fed by searching for and finding that meaning. Even while he was in the concentration camp, he chronicled all the examples he could see of courageous, loving, and selfless acts by both prisoners and even the guards. And he spent long hours counseling other prisoners not to think of suicide, but to focus on love that they had experienced in their lives and might hopefully experience again should they survive the war. And he felt that this was what gave meaning to his life in that setting. Now few of us have the courage and the resilience of a Viktor Frankl, but also fortunately few of us will ever suffer the awful kind of trauma that he experienced. Which is not to say that we're, there is not pain and suffering in our lives. The very first principle of Buddhism is life is suffering. But for those of us who have not suffered from severe trauma, but who nonetheless have suffered from loss, from pain, occasional betrayals, and other forms of suffering, how can we most helpfully deal with that aspect of our existence? Again, there is no simple answer to this question, no quick fix. But I think there are clues that we can glean from our own experience and from the experience of others that can help us with this. Now Frankl's experience points to one very important resource that I think is of tremendous help to us. And that lies in what he called the search for meaning that he felt was inherent in all of us. The existentialists have taught us that to be human is to have a need to find meaning in our existence. And we find that meaning in many different places. Some find it in the beauty of nature, some in religious faith. Others may see it in their professional vocation. Others may see it more in the love they experience with friends and family. And for most of us, I think, meaning is found in a combination of these things. I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking it's only going to be found in, the, in our professional life. But that's not true at all, and, and sometimes we don't find it there at all, but we have other places in our lives where we do find it. The psychologist Eric Erickson had some very helpful things to say about this when he spoke about what he called the eight ages of man. Erickson felt that the lifespan could be divided into eight different periods from birth to death, each of which is marked by a developmental task that we feel driven to fulfill by virtue of being human. It's almost genetically built into us to have to deal with these developmental tasks at each stage in life. 
And he felt that there are consequences that most of us suffer when we fail to achieve these age-related tasks. He felt that the longest period of the eight was what he called midlife, which he felt begins around age 35 and continues until age 60 or later. And he said that the, he felt that the primary goal of this period, this midlife period, most of our adulthood actually, is what he called generativity. And he suggested that when we don't achieve generativity, we suffer from what he called stagnation. And what he meant by generativity is an inborn need in all of us to feel that in some way we are being generative in our lives. We're doing something that benefits others and the world. So that each of us hopefully could say, should I die tomorrow? There's at least some small way in which the world will be a better place for my having been in it. And if we can't say that, he said, then we tend to suffer, suffer from what he called stagnation and that often leads to depression. Now some people achieve their sense of generativity in their work, but I think we tend to think too much that that's where we should find it. Others achieve it more through parenting children, through, or through creative artistic expression, or through volunteer service, or through simply being a good and mindful neighbor, a good citizen, or a combination of these things. And while this need manifests itself most dominantly in the middle years of our lives, middle and later years, Erickson felt that it's with us throughout our lives and certainly uh, our entire adulthood. So it doesn't just start to become a, an urge when you're 35 years old. If you're 20 years old, you still want to find meaning in your existence. And maybe when we get to be 35, 40, especially 50, it starts nagging at us more that we want to know what the meaning of our lives is. But whatever our age, we all need to feel that we're doing something that is of value to others. And this sense of generativity is an important element, I think, in what makes it possible for us to live in the present and not to be dragged down by our past failures and painful experiences. Thinking back to something I read nearly 50 years ago, blows my mind that it was 50 years ago, uh, a rather unremarkable and yet interesting example of this, on the most mundane level, is seen in a character in one of Albert Camus' novels, which has always stuck with me. Uh, Fifty years ago I was living in Paris, and I had the very good fortune of being able to spend most of my mornings sitting in a little green folding chair in the Jardin des Tuileries reading French novels, including all of Camus. And, uh, in this novel, La Peste, The Plague, Camus has a character named Joseph Grand. And Grand is a would-be novelist who for 40 years has been trying to write the great novel, but who's never managed to get beyond the first page, which he continues to write and rewrite again and again, but which he's never quite satisfied with for 40 years. Now, most of us would see a lot of pathos in such a character. But Camus saw him as a hero because he never quit. And he continued to believe that this novel was going to come to fruition. And it was this belief that gave meaning to his existence. What this example suggests, and which is a major tenet of existential philosophy, is that the meaning is much more in the striving than in the results. Now, of course, we all want good results. We all want a successful and happy ending. But I think we find the most meaning in what we're doing now 
in trying to get there and trying to achieve our goals. And again, isn't that really what Buddhism teaches us as well? If we're too focused on either past failures or future rewards, we cease to live in the present moment where meaning exists. I remember when I entered the doctoral program in psychiatry and religion at Union Seminary some four decades ago, with two small children and a third soon to come and in very poor financial straits, I said to myself and to my wife, I want these doctoral studies to be meaningful in and of themselves so that should I die the day before they're to grant me my PhD, I'd like to be able to say, it's okay, it was worth it anyway. I can't say that I totally succeeded in doing that, especially since it took me more than 10 years to get my doctorate. But it was a worthy goal and it's a perspective that I would like to keep in every major endeavor that I enter into. Okay, this is getting a little long and I want to wrap it up, but there are two other aspects of living in the moment, beginning each day new, that I want to just mention before finishing. I won't go into detail on these, but I'll just mention them because I think they're both important. First is the whole problem of resentment versus forgiveness. And this could be the topic of numerous Dharma talks and discussions. One of the things that I think most hinders us in being able to move on from our bad experiences is the inability to forgive those whom we feel have mistreated us or to forgive ourselves for having failed in various ways. Forgiveness is a tough thing to put into practice, but I think it's so important to be able, if we're going to move on. And again, you often have that old adage, forgive and forget. But as I said earlier, I don't think we're likely to ever forget those experiences that have been painful and those betrayals and abuses that have hurt us. They are there in our brains. They're not, we're not going to forget them and we shouldn't try to. Uh, but we can learn to forgive those who've caused us the pain. And the essence of that, I think, lies in our ability to step out of our own wounded egos, if you will, and see somehow, this is very hard to do, but to see the common humanity that we share with that person or persons whom we are having difficulty forgiving. I think it lies in being able to see beneath their cruelty or their abusiveness or their mindlessness to their basic humanity and realizing that somewhere within them is the same need for love and meaning that lies within ourselves. Now clearly there's much, much more that one needs to be said to flush all that out and deal with it, but that will have to wait until another time, maybe another Dharma talk. Finally, I want to briefly recall what I said in a Dharma talk two years ago when I talked about modern neurological studies about the neuroplasticity of the brain, which is summed up very nicely in Norman Doidge's book, The Brain That Changes Itself, which is another book I highly, highly recommend. Deutsch methodically cites numerous studies which demonstrate that the brain, that wonderful organ about which we know only this much, is capable of dramatic change throughout our lives, up until the very end of our lives. We can get stuck in patterns of negative thinking, neurotic obsessions, anxious, catastrophic thinking for years or even decades but with help in changing the way we think, the way we frame our thoughts, we can literally change the neural pathways in the brain and move out of those ruts, which are often of our own making and in which we get stuck. 
And the brain never loses its capacity to do that. Never. It's never too late. And I, I can think of an example of somebody I was treating recently in his 80s who recently broke through a pattern that he had suffered from for more than 50 years. I think this is reason for hope and optimism. So in sum, what I wanted to convey this morning, what I want to convey, is my belief that to the extent that we can continue to value self-understanding, to listen to our inner selves without censoring our thoughts and memories, to the extent that we can trust that we can integrate our bad experiences along with the good ones, and can seek to identify what gives meaning and richness, generativity to our lives, to the extent that we can achieve these things, and I think our spiritual practice, and especially meditation, helps us very much with these, then I think we can avoid the fate of being trapped in the past like the weatherman in Groundhog Day, and we can feel better equipped to say with some conviction, this is the first moment of the rest of my life. And when we don't succeed at that, which will happen many times, I think we can always start over again and again, and again, and that's okay. Thank you.